In 2005, author David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address at Kenyon College where he argued against unconsciousness, lack of awareness, succumbing to the default setting in the rat race of life. He began his remarks with a parable about fish. He said, There are these two fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other direction, who nods at them and says, Good morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and eventually one looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? Wallace later claimed the point of this story is that the most obvious, important realities of our lives are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. The capital T truth about life, he said, is that the real value of an education has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness of what is hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, and we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again, this is water. This is water. Today, in the season of Epiphany, on the first Sunday after the inauguration of a new president and a seemingly peaceful transition of power that has been the bedrock of American democracy for almost 250 years, I've come to ask you the question, how's the water? How's the water today? Is the water feeling a little warmer, a little lighter, a little more hopeful today than it was a week or two weeks ago? Can you see the water? Can you feel the water? Are you growing more conscious of the water? Are you coming now for the very first time to an awareness of the water we're swimming in? Are you diving deeper in your awareness and understanding of the water? Or are you still asking yourself, what the hell is water? Wherever you are in your relationship to the water, Jesus comes to us as one unknown, as of old by the lakeside, as he came to those who knew him not. And he speaks to us the same words, follow me and sets us to the task that we must fulfill for our time. And to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, conflicts, and sufferings they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, we shall learn in our own experience who he is and who we truly are as well. He walks across our shoreline where land meets unknown sea and there we hear his voice of power calling us, come, follow me. The Galilean strategy of Jesus begins with a call. And yet the call is not really the beginning of the good news, but the startup the launch, the activation of a movement intentionally grounded in a particular place and time in history with a particular group of people. Why did Jesus go to Galilee to start a movement? Why not Jerusalem? Why not Rome? 
Why would he go to the armpit of Judea, the hotbed of Gentiles, where Herod had exiled dissidents and thieves, this refugee camp for the poor, this backwater abandoned part of the empire? They asked, can anything good come from such a place? Why would Jesus start a movement in Galilee? Well, because the gospel tells us John the Baptist had been arrested. He'd been arrested by Herod. Jesus went to Galilee after the wild, camel hair wearing, leather belt strapping, locust and honey eating prophet was arrested for preaching truth to power and by proclaiming King Herod was living unjustly and breaking the law. So Herod ordered John to be arrested. And with their leader gone, John's disciples had scattered into the wind, including Jesus. Yes, even Jesus had been scattered. He must have faced an existential crisis at that moment. What do we do now that John is gone? Where do we go? What's next for us? He couldn't stay in Jerusalem and keep preaching directly at King Herod and all his lawlessness and injustice. He'd just get arrested like John did. John's movement was over. The time had come for Jesus to take up the mantle of his mentor and predecessor and to continue proclaiming John's message that the kingdom of God had come and arrived. John had come from a priestly lineage of the Levites and like his father, Zechariah, the priest, And that lent some authority and legitimacy to John's preaching and baptizing ministry. But Jesus had no such authority, no pedigree on which to rely, no lineage on which to stand. Who would listen to him? Who would be his disciples? Who would follow him? Certainly not a priest or religious leader, a politician or an aristocrat, certainly not those of high station in Jerusalem. They would never follow the son of a poor carpenter and construction worker whose mother conceived out of wedlock. But you know who might? Some laborers, some workers, some fishermen, especially those who were laboring in the God-forsaken Sea of Galilee. Growing up, my children's Bible and Sunday school literature offered picturesque scenes of fishermen on the Sea of Galilee in rowboats peacefully casting their nets upon the tranquil water. I imagine them taking some fish home to feed their families and then the rest to take into the market to make an honest day's wage, a romantic and pastoral image to be sure, but also terribly naive. In those days, the Romans had a condiment that was more prevalent than ketchup is today, called garum. Garum was the empire's special sauce made of fermented fish guts, dried, ground, and seasoned with salt. The Romans were crazy about garum. It was the staple of every single meal. They used it like butter and oil in cooking. The empire ran on garum. 
In fact, it was so essential to the Roman diet, a vast network of trade routes were developed to transport this prized delicacy across the empire. Making garum was a smelly enterprise, so the Romans used towns they'd conquered as sites for production. Some of the finest garum in the Mediterranean Sea was made on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, archaeologists have now discovered that the town of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene hailed, was the fish processing center of Judea. King Herod made the equivalent of today's dollars $43 million a year, extracting fish from the Sea of Galilee and exploiting the cheap labor of Galilean peasants to make this valuable product. But while Herod was getting rich and the Romans were enjoying their delicious fish sauce, the average Galilean fisherman was struggling to survive. These poor fishermen were essential workers trapped in the economy of an oppressive aristocratic empire. The fishermen in Mark's story weren't individual workers or local small business entrepreneurs in a free enterprise system. By the time Jesus started recruiting disciples, the fishing industry in Palestine was fully under the control of the Roman Empire. Caesar owned the land and every body of water, and all fishing was regulated by the Roman Empire for the benefit of the urban elite. Fishermen could not even attain a license to fish without joining a syndicate. And most of what they caught was then exported, leaving local communities impoverished and hungry, deprived of the very dietary staple they depended on for centuries as a community. The Romans then collected exorbitant taxes and tolls each time fish were sold. It was illegal to catch a single fish outside of this exploitative system. This was the water that they were in. This is the water where we find Jonah and Sons fishing operation and the Zebedee and Sons fishing operation. This is the water we find Peter and Andrew, James and John not only fishing in but swimming in and struggling to eke out a living in. Jesus came to that very shoreline in that system and called out to those young fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and said, how's the water? How's the water, Peter and Andrew? How's the water, James and John? How's the water out there today? We can't understand why these fishermen immediately dropped their nets, disobeyed their fathers, left the family business, and got out of the water to follow Jesus. We just don't get it. Centuries of biblical scholarship, countless sermons have been preached on this story, and nobody seems to understand it. Nobody seems to get why they left so immediately. What would possess someone to do something so dramatic and immediate and ridiculous? It wasn't magic. See, we think the fishermen were like the two young fish in Wallace's parable, swimming through the water, swimming through life, unaware of the water that they were in. But they weren't. They knew exactly what they were in. No, we, we today are more like those two young fish. We're the ones who don't know very much about those first century waters that they were in, or very much about the water we're swimming in today. 
Galilee was the seedbed of revolutionary activity at that time. In the immediate period of Jesus' mission, peasants had mounted numerous protests and formed a number of resistance movements, most of which the Romans suppressed with brutal military action and domination. In response to the perpetual subjugation to the exploitative practices of the Roman Empire, peasants in Galilee regularly engaged in forms of resistance. The centuries preceding and immediately following Jesus' life and ministry were driven by persistent conflict between Galilean peasants and their local and imperial rulers. In fact, actions by Galilean peasants drove most of the major historical events of that time period. Jesus' life and ministry were framed by four major peasant revolts, the Maccabean Revolt, the Revolt at the Death of Herod, the Great Revolt Against Roman Rule, and the Bar Kokhba Revolution. That's why Jesus went to Galilee, to start another Galilean resistance movement. Suffice it to say, the Galilean peasants were not only aware of the water they were in, they were not content with the condition of the water that they and their families were swimming in and living in. They were sick and tired of being sick and tired and oppressed and exploited, and they were regularly protesting against the Roman authorities who thought they owned all the land and the water and the fish and the fishermen and their boats and their families and exploited their labor continually. Jesus didn't have to say anything more than how's the water to Peter and Andrew and James and John because they were Galileans. They knew. They knew what they were in. They were immersed in a long history of resistance. They knew full well the water that they were in. They'd been radicalized and prepared for a revolution as children long before Jesus ever came and said, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Galileans joining a revolutionary anti-imperial movement was nothing new, nothing surprising. The question is not, why did they drop their nets and immediately follow Jesus, but instead, why not? Why didn't they do it quicker? Couple their Galilean roots with the scriptural allusions that Jesus employed here, and we have all the answers we need for the fishermen's radical behavior and departure from the waters. Scholar Ched Myers claims there is no expression more traditionally misunderstood than Jesus' invitation to become fishers of people. My, how this has been misinterpreted over the years. This metaphor, despite the grand tradition of missionary enterprise and interpretation, does not refer to Jesus conferring upon these day laborers instant status to be evangelists. Rather, it is a prophetic image, carefully chosen from Jeremiah 16, where it is a symbol of God's liberation, hooking fish was a euphemism for rescuing the rich in Amos 4 and delivering people captured by the waters of empire in Ezekiel 29, where God says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Behold the great dragon that lie in the midst of your streams and how you say the Nile is my own and I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of the waters with all the fish. 
That's what Jesus was referring to. Jesus called the sons of Jonah and the sons of Zebedee and invited those Galilean peasants, already revolutionized, to join him in the work of gathering people out of the waters of the empire and into a new community and a new humanity, to build a new kingdom and a new family and a new creation. He was calling ordinary people, common laborers, to organize with him, to join him in the Galilean strategy of gathering people with their backs against the wall, casting out demons, seeking the peace of the city, and healing their shame. As he said in his first sermon, Jesus was beckoning those forgotten by the powers that be, those oppressed and exploited, who were living in toxic waters, to partner with him in preaching good news to the poor, in building up the brokenhearted, in proclaiming liberty to the captives, Release to the prisoners, announcing the year of jubilee, forgiving people's debts, comforting all who mourn, giving them garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, mantles of praise instead of a faint spirit, to build up with him the ancient ruins of society, to raise up the former devastations, to repair ruined cities, and to renew the desolation of many generations." Jesus invited the fishermen to come out of the water of empire and join him in the great struggle to overturn the existing order of inequality. That's why they came so quickly. Across the intervening centuries, this invitation would be reiterated time and time again. And it would be often rejected. But the adventure of discipleship of following Jesus, rings out in every age. And the work we are summoned to do is always the same, to seek out and gather people together into a beloved community. When we are called to follow Jesus, we are first called to gather, to gather people out of the water of empire, to be liberated into the waters of grace and love, into a fellowship where a person's value is not determined by their lineage or race or class or economic status or ethnicity or sexuality or gender or political affiliation or religious belief, but simply by being a beloved human being. Every time we welcome someone into our lives or create space in our community, or walk alongside another person on the road of life, we are living out the call of Jesus to be fishers of people. But we cannot engage in the sacred work of gathering others into beloved community until we are aware of the water in which we swim, until we begin our own journey out of the water ourselves. This means the first task of following Jesus is not actually dropping our nets or leaving our boats in a leap of faith or swimming to shore or even getting out of the water. The first task of following Jesus is to become aware of the water, to learn the water, to understand the nature of the water we are in. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who are in need of a doctor but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. This Wednesday, as a nation, we were enraptured and inspired by a young woman in her 20s who demonstrated with incredible insight and brilliance 
how powerful a single person can be when they are able to see, know, feel, and understand with tremendous clarity the reality of the water that we are in. In The Hill We Climb, poet laureate Amanda Gorman proclaimed, Being American is more than the pride we inherit. It is the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country even if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. We do not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. She said, we will not march back to what was, but move on to what will be, a country that is bruised but whole, benevolent but bold, fierce and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens, but one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover, and every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light. If we are brave enough to see it, if we are brave enough to be it. Are we brave enough to open our eyes and see the water that we are in? Do we have the courage to move out of denial, reject unconsciousness, and become truly mindful and deeply aware of the waters of this empire? We have been gathered by a God who gathers so that we might gather others. We have been called to heal and reconcile the world as our Jewish neighbors have taught us in Tikkun Olam by gathering up all the fragmented pieces of God that have been scattered over all of creation as human lives and put them back together into one beloved family of peace and justice and equality. This is the first task of the church, the first task of the followers of Jesus and the Galilean strategy, a strategy that leads toward the dawning of the kingdom of God. But in order to do this holy work with honesty and integrity, we must learn to answer the question, how's the water? How is the water? Amen.